From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The leader of the Joint All-Domain Command and Control System says he's underwhelmed by the solutions industry is presenting him so far. Lieutenant General Dennis Crawl says he's already lowered his expectations based on pitches he's gotten from industry. FedScoop reports Crawl says he's asking industry to step up its game. The Air Force Academy's accreditation is at risk because of legacy IT, according to the school's superintendent. Lieutenant General Richard Clark told the House Appropriations Defense uh, Subcommittee Tuesday one of his problems is the academy is on a .edu network, while the rest of the Air Force is on .mil. FCW reports Clark told the committee he needs money for upgrades right away and in the future. Naval Academy midshipmen will start getting coronavirus vaccines at the end of the month. Superintendent Vice Admiral Sean Buck told the same hearing the program will prepare mids for summer training and joining the fleet. USNI News reports Buck said the Academy has an increase, has had an increase in positive COVID tests. The Defense Innovation Unit is celebrating its fifth birthday. DIU reports a total of 208 other transaction authorities in its five-year history, and 40% of its contracts have gone to production. Deborah Lee James is the 23rd Secretary of the Air Force. She's author of Aim High, Chart Your Course, and Find Success. Madam Secretary, it's great to see you again. Thanks for coming back. What is your assessment of DIU in the value that it's added to the department in the five years that it's existed now? Well, I think DIU has been a great success. It's very hard to, to move a culture, to change a way of doing business in a big bureaucracy like DOD. And I think DIU has made an, an important difference, uh, really in three ways, I would say. First of all, they've done a great job of raising awareness across the board, just to the degree that these commercial innovations are out there in the private sector. It has opened many eyes in DOD that previously were just simply unaware, particularly in hubs like the Silicon Valley, Boston, Washington State, uh, and Austin, Texas. So um, they've made great strides in raising awareness, and they've made DOD contracting more accessible to small businesses that otherwise would have never been willing to share their commercial te technologies with DOD. The second way is they've raised awareness, and I think they've actually led training efforts in some cases on the use of other transaction authorities. So this is the more rapid authority that can be used for prototyping. You can get a company under contract in a matter of a couple of months. Um, and this has been something that's been around for years, but it, the use of these OTAs has exploded in recent years, and I give DIU a lot of credit for that. And then third, the real measure of success, the ultimate measure of success, 30 years from now, we'll look back and we'll say how many programs actually did transition from the prototype stage into programs of record and scale to be impactful in the military. I think they've had a very solid start in that regard as well. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Madam Secretary, but those are three major areas that Secretary Carter emphasized and, and wanted to see DIU undertake and, and propagate throughout the department when he stood it up in 2015. No, that's right. So his his original vision, his original strategy, I think, was, was very clear, and it was to tap into both the investment and the speed of advances uh, within the commercial technology industry and to bring those benefits specifically to DOD. So that was the original vision and strategy. 
What has evolved over time, though, interestingly, is the tactics. It's the how to achieve that vision that has evolved. So if you go back, and I was there at the birth of DIUX, as it was known in the uh, first couple of years, uh, it was only stationed, it was a small team only in the Silicon Valley. It had no budget unto itself, and it had no contracting authority unto itself. And I suppose, not surprisingly, as we look back, it struggled for all of those reasons. But gradually, over time, it expanded out into other areas. That team grew, new disciplines were added to the team. There was new leadership put in at DIU, and also uh, they, uh, they obtained their own budget and their own contracting authority. So suddenly they've become more popular with the military services because the military services now get to use other people's money and other people's contracting authority so that they can test things out without a great deal of financial commitment or effort. So the how, the tactics have evolved over time, I think to a very successful degree, but the vision remains the same and very strong. The phrase that you used in all of your description about what you see uh, as DIU has evolved that I think is the most compelling, Madam Secretary, is changing culture. I think everybody that's watching this program understands the difficulty of doing that in an enterprise like the Department of Defense. What do you attribute that success to that DIU, given all of those challenges they had at the beginning that you just described, have been able to change culture inside the DOD? Well, and I, I would say it's still a work in progress. I wouldn't say that the culture is fully changed, but again, having your own budget, having your own contracting authority, having your own people who can work some of these deals on behalf of the military departments, it helps a great deal. And the key challenge still remains, and this is the one where in the future, I think as DIU continues to evolve, they need to continue to work on, is they need to do everything within their power to address the so-called valley of death. So this is, you know, the phrase that's been used over time to describe the period in between a new idea or a prototype. And there's usually a couple of years worth of a lag between a successful pr prototype proving itself out in the prototype world and actually making it into a program of record. It takes a couple of years because, you know, budgets are done a couple of years in advance and the military services have to become convinced of things and appropriations have to be requested and so on. So there's usually a bit of a lag. Small companies can't hold on for a couple of years waiting for additional funding to come. So it's that critical couple of year period called the valley of death that we need to bridge. And I do hope that DIU will continue to work on that. Getting money specifically to be able to address that couple of year period will be important. And with their ongoing success, the culture will continue to change. Madam Secretary, with budget shrinking all across the department, has DIU demonstrated the return on investment that you think it needs to protect itself from getting its budget cut? Uh, I think the answer, Frank, yes. I think it has demonstrated a good return on investment. Again, we're only five years in, which isn't that long when you're talking about changing a large bureaucracy, a large culture like exists in DOD, but it has survived now over the course of, this is the third administration that it will have existed. The X for DIUX experimental came off in 2018, so it was now considered to be a program that will be here to stay. And Congress has uh, plussed it up in a number of important ways. So I think it's catching on. I think it's going to continue to get better and better. And uh, again, I do think it is here to stay. It has also spawned, I'll say, a cottage industry across the Department of Innovation, 
labs and innovation focal points. So innovation is definitely in. And again, I think it's here to stay. Madam Secretary, thanks very much for joining me today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Francis. Up next, the Army's need for hypersonic speed. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the benefits and challenges of hypersonic missiles. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Army will conduct its first hypersonic test toward the end of this fiscal year, and the Army believes it will have live rounds on the missiles by the fall of 2023. Seth Cropsey, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, former deputy undersecretary of the Navy, writing about hypersonic missiles in Defense News. Seth, welcome. It's good to see you again. You write about the importance of hypersonic weapons as a denial technique. What's that term mean? Uh, thank you, Francis. Good to be here. Uh, the single most important uh, ability of hypersonic missiles for the United States is to uh, circumvent, get around China's uh, access, anti-access and area denial strategy, which is to keep uh, American uh, naval platforms, ships, combatants at a distance uh, of at least a thousand miles from the Chinese mainland, which would uh, severely disrupt our ability to project power uh, into the South China Sea and also to communicate and support, uh, communicate with our allies and support them. So, uh, uh, that's where hypersonic missiles are of the most immediate importance to the United States, and we haven't done, we haven't done enough about it. You write in this piece, stealth aircraft, low-cost, high-quantity warships, submarines, and unmanned systems will be critical in that uh, mission of penetrating access denial networks. Where do hypersonics fit into that landscape of, of systems, Seth? Well, they uh, a large part of that the answer to your excellent question, Francis, is what is our strategy? What is the United States and the Navy in particular strategy uh, for uh, deterring conflict and for uh, winning a war if it comes to that? Uh, that would make it much easier to uh, give a, you know, a definitive answer to your question, but uh, a general one is this, uh, and I'm repeating what I said a moment ago, but the, 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 the general idea is that the extreme speed and the distance and the range at which hypersonic missiles operate uh, make it extremely difficult for China to execute the uh, A2AD strategy that is, you know, their clear intent uh, uh, from everything that we've seen from their increasing 
size of their missile arsenal to uh, the kinds of missiles that they're deploying uh, to their claims that they can hit a American, large American combatant at sea at a distance of a thousand miles. All of that uh, combined uh, is intended to prevent U.S. forces from uh, projecting power uh, to the Chinese mainland and to the South China Sea. And hypersonic missiles are one means uh, of allowing uh, of being able to deter them by letting them know that they're at risk. You uh, also write in this piece, the more common public worry is that hypersonic glide vehicles on intercontinental ballistic missiles could transform the nuclear balance by obviating all air defense systems. Is that a worry that people should have or is that an unfounded worry, do you believe, Seth? Well, I think it's a, a genuine worry. I think the chances of a complete transformation of uh, our of the Trident to a hypersonic-based system uh, in in the you know in the foreseeable future are low. I think the greater applicability of hypersonics is to uh, theater defenses and theater uses, where they can be. Where they, where they can be used by an enemy, for example, to destroy the defenses that we have for our, um, our air and naval bases in the Pacific. Uh, that, um, I, that idea of, of uh, the systems at the theater level is how you close this piece. Hypersonics deserve significant investment as offensive weapons, particularly at the theater level, as do missile defense technologies. What's your sense of the cues that you have so far, either through strategy documents or through statements uh, by some of the new Biden administration officials that they might think the same thing that you do, Seth? Uh, I think it's a little bit early to uh, expect the Biden officials, uh, the Biden administration to come up with a strategy. The previous administration um, had not uh, had not really produced a strategy worthy of the name for uh, deterring China. Um, I, I don't. I don't think that. Uh, I do think that, in many senses, the Biden administration will find itself, uh, if not in uh, spoken agreement with its predecessor, at least uh, thinking along the same vein. Uh, and that's simply because of what China is doing uh, in the in the Pacific, in in the South China Sea. Uh, from Japan to Vietnam and uh, and around into uh, into the Indian Ocean, I don't think there's much much choice that I don't think the Biden administration is going to say that, that China is not a strategic competitor uh, or that there is no significant military threat that comes in the Indo that is emerging from the Indo-Pacific. But as far as strategy documents, yet um, we're waiting to see what comes out of the administration. Seth Cropsey, thanks very much for joining me. Always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you, Francis. My pleasure. You can find a link to Seth's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, when is a legacy system not a legacy system? Straight ahead on Government Matters, decision makers at the Pentagon might be using the wrong metrics. We'll be right back.
The House's Future of Defense Task Force argues the Defense Department should identify, retire, and replace legacy platforms cost too much and are outdated. The Defense Department has to decide first, though, what a legacy platform is. Thomas Mankin is president, chief executive officer of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He's former deputy assistant secretary of defense for policy planning and writing about legacy systems in defense news. Tom, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You may forgive the cynic in me for thinking that the members of that task force are the only members of Congress who want to retire anything. What do you suggest we do to evaluate legacy systems, how we decide which are the ones that should go away? Well, first, it's always a pleasure to be with you. And and look, I think, yeah, we need to have a conversation about what exactly uh, a legacy system is. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's not just about age or maybe even mainly about age. Uh, a cost definitely should factor in. But we think that, you know, more important uh, is assessing the role of that, uh, that system in modern warfare. How well can it network? How well can it speak with others? Uh, how well, uh, how adaptive is it to new missions, to new capabilities? How interoperable is it uh, with, with our allies? We, we think those are the types of criteria that really should be front and center as we think about what really uh, a legacy system is. I compare the list that you and your colleague Christopher Bassler write about in Defense News to the uh, discussion more broadly across the government um, in outputs versus outcomes. It strikes me that you're trying to measure the outcomes that a system provides rather than the outputs. Am I reading that right, Tom? Yeah, no, absolutely right. Uh, you know, what, how, how can that system contribute to our effectiveness on, on the battlefield? And how can it uh, contribute to our effectiveness in uh, deterring adversaries? So I think you're exactly right. There's one point. There, there are uh, eight or so of these criteria that you cite in this piece. But the last one on the list is the one that intrigued me the most. How easy or difficult would it be to replace the platform if more is needed? How easily and how quickly and at what cost can they be obtained? How healthy is the industrial base that supports it? We found over the years, Tom, obviously, that that looks a lot different at the front end than it does in the middle or the back end. I might cite the F-35 program as one example of that. Is there a way to measure what you're proposing that we measure objectively, or is it subjective and we just have to take the fact that it will look different as time goes on? Well, I think you're right. It, it does look different as, as time goes on. And so, uh, you know, that, that gets to the issue of replacements, right? In some cases, it may be buying more how easy is it to replace attrition to buy more of the same thing in other cases it may be well what's what's the next best thing what what are the what are the substitutes and you know we've gotten out of the habit of thinking in those terms um but i think uh you know for for better and worse uh in an era where we're we're competing with some some pretty capable powers we're, we're going to need to get back to that type of thinking i cite one example and i know there are many all across the department but the example of uh, Joint All-Domain Command and Control, a dramatically, radically different way of warfighting and, and providing information to warfighters than we've ever seen before. Does that kind of radical transformation that technology is driving make it easier or harder to identify legacy systems, Tom? Well, I think in, 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 some, ways, uh, in some ways easier because it brings to the forefront connectivity, right, and ability to connect, communicate with other systems. Uh, and I think increasingly that's, you know, that's a that's a more and more important criterion uh, for judging the, the value of a, of a system. 
So the, the thread that I pull from that then is that it should be easier and it should make Congress more willing to say, this thing that doesn't really connect well to modern systems should be a pretty easy one for us to decide can go away. Is that a reasonable expectation, do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. Now, with the caveat that there are all sorts of approaches, you know, to, uh, you know, to modify legacy systems, to give them the ability to connect. Uh, but that that connectivity really, yeah, really should be front and center in these uh, deliberations. You and Christopher Wright to close this piece, Tom, Congress and the De uh, Defense Department need a sophisticated approach for thinking about legacy systems, one that focuses on relevance to contemporary competition and conflict. What do you think the appetite is for that? Because that requires a rethinking on the parts of the committees of jurisdiction, it strikes me, uh, and not just the department itself. Your lead, and you mentioned the you know the House Future of Defense Task Force and just the existence of that task force, its report, and I think the commitment of its members uh, are those are all very hopeful signs uh, as, as far as this conversation is uh, is concerned. I think there are members who are committed. Uh, and, you know, we, we need to support them as, as we move forward. Are there individual systems that one should watch as potentially markers that if Congress can't agree to get rid of this, then the rest of something more sophisticated or more subjective might be more difficult? Do things like that exist, Tom? You know, I'd, I'd rather not go in that direction just because, you know, I think it's 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 to to here to date. It's been too much. Uh, a legacy system is is something that I, that I don't like uh, and think it should go away. In many cases that may be correct. In other cases, it's incorrect. I think we need to have that disciplined discussion and debate, and you know let let the uh, let the results come out of that debate. Fair answer, Tom. Thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You can find a link to Tom's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, too, to get a preview of every one of our shows. You sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.